This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Welcome, listeners. This is Annie Mamakon, and you are listening to another episode of The Law School Show. Recently, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Professor Craig Forces. He's a law professor at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law, and he and I covered a lot of interesting and exciting topics that I'm about to bring to you. Here are some of the highlights. We dived right into our conversation by talking about Bill C-51 and Professor Forces' experience writing a book in real time with his co-author, Professor Kent Roach of the University of Toronto. That book is called False Security, Radicalization of Canadian Anti-Terrorism. If you have any interest in anti-terror legislation, policy, or just national security law in general, I would highly recommend this book. We then went into a conversation about work-life balance. At this point, Professor Forsees mentions an author in a book. He talks about Anne-Marie Slaughter. She is actually the first female director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department. And the book that he is referring to is called Unfinished Business, which was very recently published. It's an incredibly engaging read, and I would highly recommend it if you are interested in finding balance in your life, but also much broader social issues such as equality for men and women, work and family and balance and all of that. We then talked about more specifics in terms of balance. Specifically, we were looking at balance in law school while you are articling and just in your profession more generally later on post-articles. And we talked about lifestyle changes that will allow you to have long-term stability versus quick short-term fixes. So Professor Forces provides a lot of great insight about how you can find that balance while maintaining your efficiency in your professional work. We dived into a conversation about routines. We talked about Professor Forces' morning routine, his exercise and endurance training. Professor Forces is an incredibly athletic individual who has participated in numerous endurance training competitions. And he, he really describes himself as a very efficient person. And there is a reason for that. And we talk a little bit about that in the interview as well. I had so much fun with this interview and I walked away learning so much. I hope that you all also walk away from this interview as motivated as I was. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Professor Craig Forces. Enjoy. Professor Craig Forces, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I'm a professor of law here at the University of Ottawa. I teach uh, a number of uh, topics, both in the upper year and first year program. Uh, probably uh, the area that I do the most work in now is national security law, but also teach uh, public international, our first year public law and legislation course and administrative law. I've mm-hmm. uh, been here since 2003. Before that, I was in private practice for a few years in the United States, and I clerked at the federal court. And you have a lot of non-law-related hobbies as well. I understand you're quite the athlete. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Well, I, I, I've been in the midst of a prolonged midlife crisis uh, <laughs> since my late 30s when I decided that uh, that was my last opportunity to recapture the virtues of, of youth and 
I got involved in some long distance endurance events, Ironman events, some ultra marathons, uh, some long distance ski races. I've I've I've, I've certainly ratcheted it back in the last couple of years because I got tired of, of falling asleep under my desk during the working hours. So. <laughs> well, that's something I want to talk to you more about because I think fitness and health is so important while being in law school and also in the legal profession. So I'm hoping to get some of your tips on that. But before we get to that, I want to jump straight into what you and Professor Kent Roach just recently did. You just recently co-authored a book titled False Security, the Radicalization of Canadian Anti-Terrorism. You really did what was never done before, which was you were producing work real time while a bill was actually being introduced and debated. So I really want to get your thoughts on how that all panned out, and more importantly, was there a strategy to when you started this? Like, what was the idea that made you start this project that's been ongoing for a while now? Well, I, I think it would probably overstate the case to say that we had it all planned out at okay. inception. Uh, to, in large measure, we were surprised by Bill C-51 like everyone else. We had heard rumors about its content. We didn't have the details. We were floored when it was released about this time last year, the end of January, uh, it was 2015, and the extent to which it strayed well beyond accepted and established understandings in national security law. Kent and I obviously do a fair amount of work in this area, uh, and, and one of the things we've already been committed to is trying to build expertise in national security law outside of government. It tends to be an area that's monopolized within government. It's not an attractive area for many academics, largely because you spend your entire career appearing at the tip of the iceberg because so much is mired in secrecy. Uh, nevertheless, it's an important area of the law that really requires careful scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So when C-51 was tabled, we looked around and we realized that in the absence of sustained work on our part, there was substantial risk that a lot of the issues would not be adequately debated, especially in the, the political environment of the day, mm -hmm. uh, where, it, where it was highly politicized. Uh, and we looked at what would have happened if it had been a UK bill in the United Kingdom and also in Australia. There's an independent monitor of national security law who's privy to secret information but weighs in on the merits of law projects. We don't have such a creature in Canada, and so we did our, our poor best to be uh, a, a, an adequate Canadian uh, mm -hmm. version of that independent monitor. And so that was basically our strategy. Uh, and then in terms of tactics... We decided to be as transparent and frank as we could be and to push out as much material as quickly as we could. We used social media a lot. We produced our alternative backgrounders on the bill. We consciously labeled them drafts and sought input. In other words, we are performing a function mm -hmm. in terms of consultation that the government, frankly, was not. Um, in some respects, we saw ourselves as a, as, as a means of consolidating non-governmental perspectives and we actually received a fair amount of feedback from especially persons who were once in government once in national security and that input turned out to be very valuable because those persons did have inside knowledge they wouldn't share their operational information no secrets but their perspectives were very valuable then in shaping mm -hmm. the approach we took and so if I, you'd mentioned tactics, I wonder what did your days look like when you were undertaking this project? I know that you were on sabbatical, but I imagine it took many, many hours every single day to keep up with every new issue that was coming up and produce more work. They were crazy hours. I, I, when I was in private practice, I was on a, a 3,000 billable hour cycle in mm -hmm. Washington. Uh, and so that meant you got up at seven or eight in the morning and you just worked flat out uh, for 12, 13, 14 hours a day. 
that was pretty much the cycle we were on when we were working on this project. Uh, now, the difference was I was at home in my pajamas often, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, the hours were, were quite extreme and the other difference was we weren't getting paid a cent so Kent and I often joke that if we'd been paid for our work we'd be we'd have vacation homes in the in the Caribbean um, but uh, it was quite validating work in the sense that we felt that we were we were performing a public service as an academic my salary is paid by the taxpayer and and my student tuition and part of my function part of the role I have as an academic is public engagement and I take that role very seriously as does Kent uh, and this seems uh, the perfect example of where we should be quite active. There's no society can justify a tenured academic if tenured academics are unprepared to offer advice, opinion, and expertise during during points of public controversy where that, that advice and expertise might lend itself in raising the debate. Mm-hmm. And so if we were to take that kind of you know, motivation that you had with Professor Roach and translated to, say, the everyday life of a student in law school. You know, how, what tips would you have to get students motivated? And you know, what I always think about is I have ebbs and flows. So when, I, when things are flowing, everything is great. I'm always on top of my work. But then you hit an ebb and you are stuck and things trickle down from there. So do you have any tips on staying motivated? Like, Do you, do you set goals? Do you have long-term goals, short-term goals? And, and do you have any advice for students on yeah. something like that? Well, everyone's different, but but, but I, I tend to be quite, well, A-type is probably the best descriptor. I, right. I, I like to be, I like to organize my life as best I can. And and you mentioned the the endurance events that, that I that I do, uh, very regimented training plans, and you have to work them within your everyday schedule. And you worry about departing from those training plans. And so you get very, very rigid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality, though, of course, is that life happens. And you can't actually, you sit down at the beginning of an academic year or the beginning of a training cycle and you say, on this day, I'm going to be doing X. It never quite works out that way. So you have to have an element of flexibility. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned the concept of ebbs and flows. Uh, with the passage of time, I've appreciated that life is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, and... Uh, you can't accomplish everything at the same time. And to a certain extent, this, I, I suspect, begins to sound like a conversation with Amory Slaughter in terms of the idea of, right. of, of prioritizing certain aspects of your life at different times and not expecting to be able to accomplish everything at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, in her book, which I read this past Christmas, and it's actually quite an entertaining book, very insightful, she talks about tours of duty uh, and the idea being that there are circumstances and times in your life where you can jump in with both feet and you can work at a pace and at a cadence that you wouldn't otherwise be able to sustain. But you have to appreciate that that is a block of time and then you have to roll back from it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my advice to students is that you will have busy cycles, but you have to appreciate that the busy cycles, there has to be, there has a point of compensation. Uh, and you cannot maintain uh, an unsustainable cadence at all times without risking burnout. Um, so there are these macro cycles where you're very, very busy for six months or six weeks, then you have to unplug and you have to be very conscious about being unplugged and you can't feel guilty about it. Mm. You have to let yourself go fallow. Uh, and then within the, the cycle itself, the busy cycle, you need also to have little micro breaks. You really do need to make sure no, no matter how busy you are that you get out for that run or you do whatever it is that recharges your battery. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even in that block of time, which is finite, where you're working so hard, you, you risk a, a burnout 
within a relatively short period of time, certainly you stop functioning quite as effectively. Mm -hmm. If you do that, you become more efficient with your time allocation. And, and that then, I think, uh, means that the next time you go in a cycle, you set up systems. Right. So setting up systems that work for you and then tinkering with those systems and redeploying them means that you can accomplish things that you thought were impossible earlier in your life. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned systems. I want to pick up on that and drill down a little bit further. If we take that sort of macro level management of your time and drill it down to your day to day life, um, like one thing I've tried to establish in my life now that I'm articling is some kind of a morning routine, something to get me started, something to make me alert so that when I get to work at 8 a.m., I am sharp. Um, some days work better than others. And so I wonder if you have any advice on that. Do you think there's value in establishing day to day routine? And if yes, do you have a morning routine? Yeah, I, I, I'm like I say, I'm I'm a routine guy. I like routines. I, mm -hmm. in principle, I like I like the idea of getting up and and exercising vigorously first thing in the morning for a couple of reasons. The first is that uh, it, it it tends to galvanize you. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not hanging over your head for the rest of the day. I've got to get my exercise in. How I'm going to do it? I'm getting swept away by events. Right. Uh, it also tends actually to be more effective in the sense that if you if you reach a burn early in the morning, you continue to burn through the day. That means that uh, in terms of if you're concerned about fitness and uh, and calorie consumption, that sort of stuff, exercise in the morning is always better than exercise late in the day. Plus, exercise late in the day can disrupt your sleep routine. So yes, I'm a great believer in exercising in the morning. Do I always accomplish that objective? Not always. Uh, and the risk you run, especially once you have a family, of course, is that you get swept up in the family chaos of the, of the early morning. And so it means sometimes getting up even earlier. Now, mm -hmm. I have an advantage. I have a dog, and my dog <laughs> likes getting me up very early. And he will not take no for an answer. So he okay. is better than any alarm clock. And, and uh, I also make sure that I get up at the same time every day, weekends and weekdays. So I'm not constantly superimposing jet lag on myself by changing my sleep schedule from, uh, from uh, day to day. So morning routines are very important. And one of the things I think can be very dangerous is getting up and starting to look at your email. Uh, and email generally can be uh, overwhelming. At one point in my career when I was vice dean, I was spending, and I actually clocked it, I was spending 25 hours a week just on email. Mm -hmm. uh, and that will kill productivity right there. So you have to manage your email very, very carefully if you're going to actually be able to do other things. Uh, and getting up and spending your morning on email is probably not the best investment of time, at least not as an initial investment of time. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually want to pick up on that because you know, being in law, law school as students, we have a lot of flex flexibility. And I'm starting to appreciate that very much now that I'm articling. And it's harder to create routines because articling can be quite chaotic. So I wonder if you have some advice for students who are on the clock all the time. They're on their Blackberries all the time. And, you know, we don't really know how to say no or push back. And we're always afraid if we say no that we won't get work or that it will, it will look negative on us. So, you know, what advice do you have to those students that have sort of graduated from law school now and they've moved on to articling or they're a first-year, second-year associate? I imagine they would still be dealing with similar types of issues. Like, what kind of balance can they try to establish early on in their careers? Because I find that it probably will set a tone, Yeah. right? No, it's an important point. Now, I, obviously, as an academic, I, I enjoy also that flex time. And so I can, I can cram huge amounts of work into fairly pleasant surroundings. Like mm -hmm. I work at home often. Uh, my setup at home is much more efficient than my setup here. 
Uh, I don't have the commute time. Uh, I don't have to worry about going out and finding lunch. Everything's proximate. So working at home is a, a huge advantage to me that others don't have. Uh, the I mean, I reflect back on my time as uh, as a first and second year associate when I was in private practice. Now, that was m- more than 15 years ago now. It was prior to the Blackberries were just coming into existence. It was it was uh, predated the smartphone. Smartphone was on the horizon and, and we all looked at it with horror, uh, appreciating that it would eliminate the boundary between work and non-work. Mm-hmm. The problem with the firm, and it remains a problem in many places, although I hope it's more abated than it was, is that there was a premium on FaceTime. Um, and the assumption was that if you weren't in the office, you weren't working, which was a dangerous assumption because it wasn't true. The other thing about the firm I was at, and it was true in the United States generally, is uh, I was acculturated to a, an early morning in expectation if I came in earlier, I would leave earlier. In the U.S. at the time, certainly, people would roll in about 10 o'clock, so they, were, they had a later starting time, but they would work until 10 o'clock. So if I was rolling in at 7 a.m., my 12 hours ended at 7 p.m., their 12 hours ended at 10 p.m. And so I, I would be leaving at 7 p.m. And I was pretty insistent on it. Right. But I was conscious of the fact that they wouldn't appreciate that I'd already put in those three extra hours. And so there, there absolutely there was that sense of peer pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was lucky in the sense I was working closely with a partner who, who, to a certain extent, preserved me from that pressure. She imposed her own pressures, but um, she appreciated how I worked in a way that I think allowed me to circumvent some of those pressures. So your question was, what do you do about that in that kind of environment? Uh, And the answer is that in a power relationship like that, you've got limited leverage. The starting point is, frankly, making sure you're in the right place. I mean, it sounds trite, um, but if you're in a firm where there's no prospect you're ever going to achieve any sort of reasonable balance, then you have to ask yourself whether that's the place you want to be. It costs the firm an awful lot when they burn out their associates, probably about $300,000. At least that's the stat I've seen. Um, They've trained up associates and then they burn them out. It's not a good investment. And I would hope that the management of firms isn't simply living some variant of that famous Monty Python skit where, you know, I've suffered and now it's your turn. You know, I lived at the bottom of a lake when I was your age and now it's your turn Um, because it's not a good business decision. And so that's a bit of a trite answer. The, from a, uh, an individual level, there, there are things I think you can do. So we mentioned exercise. There are ways of putting in micro bursts of exercise. And I do it sometimes when I'm uh, at home working. I will do a seven-minute exercise routine. You can find them online. There's the New York Times has this great little seven-minute exercise app, none of which requires any kind of equipment. It, you might look a little bit peculiar bouncing up and down in your office. But it's actually quite an effective routine. And it means that you know, every hour and a half, perhaps, you get up and you do essentially calisthenics for seven minutes. It will recharge you. Mm-hmm. And you can squeeze in a fair amount of solid exercise in a finite period of time. And I think it's actually quite important, given all the compelling research about the long-term impacts of people sitting. As you can see from my setup, I use a standing desk. I don't sit anymore. Um, and uh, I find that I'm... Uh, just that change in my working routine has helped me achieve an element of balance. Just the fact that I'm standing and maybe skipping from one foot to another as I'm working. Mm-hmm. So it's not a perfect answer. Um, the, I guess the, the long-term answer is make sure you segue as quickly as possible to an environment where you have more leverage and you can achieve a balance, especially when you arrive at the point where you have a family. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other kettle of fish. Right. 
Well, there's actually, so I want to mention a blog. Um, you actually upkeep a blog. There's a couple of them that you do. There's one on national security law, and then there's a more general one where you tend to give some thoughts on, uh, on being in law school, stresses in law school. One blog post in particular, this was back in October 2012. It was titled, Another Legally Correct Tale, Jane Averages Law School Days. So you talk about the reality of there being a bell curve and the stresses in law school, always looking for the next job. It's the summer job. It's the articling job. So I wonder if you have some thoughts on that, on all of those transitions. I think in law school, we're always stuck on doing the next thing. And you talked a little bit about being in the right place, finding the right fit. And it sounds like you would have to do that early on so that you don't burn out because of an imbalance in power relationships where you can't push back. So I wonder if you have some advice for our listeners on on those aspects of our lives where we're constantly competing, we're constantly thinking that success and excellence really just equates to an A or an A plus in school. So I would yeah. love to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, that's a that's a big issue. And, and so I'm in my mid-40s now. I, I went through law school. I went to the University of Ottawa for my JD, then called an LLB. And it was in the early 90s. And that was not a good time economically in Canada. And the class that I was a member of was absolutely and totally panicked. Uh, panicked to the same degree as I see in students now. Uh, and probably empirically, the situation was might even have been a little bit worse then. And... I look back on my own life. I look back on the life of people who graduated with me. I look back on the lives of students that I've known over the years who've gone on. And for most that I'm aware of, it somehow works out, right? Now, that's a highly paternalistic thing to say, and there will be people for whom it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, the, the people for whom it works out, it's not entirely clear to me that there's a close correlation between uh, grades and how happy people are in, in their careers, their law school uh, grades. It's a little bit like LSAT, right? When, when you, you do the LSAT, you get into law school, and does the LSAT ever matter ever after? No, not really. Um, grades, to a certain extent, are the same way. And, and I've reached out over the years. This is a message I try to give to students. Most students now treat anything less than a B as a, essentially an indictment. Uh, it amounts to capital punishment in their eyes. Uh, and so over the years, I've tried to bring in very prominent individuals who have enormous success in their careers and ask them just a few words about their transcripts. At the end of the day, um, many of them will tell a tale about how they got the C's and they ended up in spectacular jobs doing spectacular things. Uh, from a professor's perspective, what I want my students to do is I want them to live in the moment I want them to be educated. I want them to learn. I don't. I don't want to be in the credentialing business, pure and simple. And to the extent that the environment is all about credentialing, I think students lose much of the virtue of being in the law program and tend to be more conservative and more reluctant to be entrepreneurial in a way that I think actually harms their long-term chances. And so they see themselves. I see them in first year, and they come in, and they have these grand ambitions and then over the passage of time it seems that their perspective narrows and 
they become preoccupied with the articling buffet, the big firms, they lay it out. And if you don't go that route, then you're a failure. And that tends to steer them away from being innovative and exploring the prospect perhaps of going overseas to do something that maybe doesn't pay very well initially, but then leads as an entree into all sorts of alternative opportunities that, that can be very remunerative as well as very uh, uh, rewarding in other ways. Uh, so I, I really do encourage students just to accept that, yeah, there are going to be bumps on the road. Some of them you can control by trying to anticipate them. Some you can't. Uh, you do have to be premeditated. You can't just throw everything to the wind and say, que sera, que sera. Um, but nor do you have to obsess to the degree that I see in some cases. Uh, and I think the obsession, the obsession can be very counterproductive. It can, it can be very detrimental to the uh, uh, mental health. It can be detrimental, it seems to me, to the, to the learning experience overall. Uh, one of the things I struggle with all the time as a professor and we as an institution is how can we structure ourselves better to maximize that sort of attitude and minimize the preoccupation with credentialing. We're not there yet, and it's not entirely in our control, obviously, because it's the whole issue of getting jobs is going to be market-driven. The best we can do is write things like the blog, where I try to put things in perspective, at least from my, from my position. Mm-hmm. Well, it also sounds like in law school, the preoccupation with grades and getting the next job and the on-campus interviews, it sometimes distract students from getting other experience which is you know whether it's volunteer experience or work experience that may not be something that they thought they would be interested in but if an opportunity comes up they should take it and explore it and um, I know you've written a lot on your blog about you know different experiences as well and bolstering your resume um, with other things not just focusing on your transcript yeah so when I was in private practice, again, many years ago, uh, my, my, my law firm would, first of all, it, it was quite an elitist place. It would only really hire from top-ranked U.S. schools. Um, and so you'd get all these candidates coming in, and they were pretty much carbon copies. They all had came from the same institution. They all had fairly similar transcripts. And I was charged, among other things, with doing interviews because you know I was a junior associate, and I was supposed to convey to them the lifestyle of a junior associate. And so I would sit down and I'd look at their transcripts and I'd look at their CV and I was always anxious to find something to talk about. And it certainly wasn't going to be the B in administrative law that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the things that were more interesting that distinguished these students one from another. So I have forever since encouraged students to think about think about how they want to distinguish themselves. And I mean distinguish in many different ways. Distinguish themselves from their peers and distinguish themselves as an individual. That is, what makes you distinctive and what makes you uh, a worthy uh, candidate for a job, but also a, a worthy member of the profession and the sort of person that someone else out there who's considering hiring might want to have as a colleague. Uh, what makes you interesting? And so uh, absolutely. Now, the risk when I tell students that is they think I've got to do it all. Right? I've got to get the great marks right. and I've now got to volunteer X, Y, and Z. I've got to go overseas in the summer and I don't have the money to do so. Uh, again, I, 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 that I, I think it's, it's, it's important not to overstate the extent to which you can accomplish all that and also the extent to which you have to accomplish all that. It's about making the effort, however. And so you can do an awful lot that provides that distinctive imprimatur on your CV with a relatively modest effort. You're not talking about 40 hours a week. You're talking about maybe going and working 
uh, with a nonprofit on an interesting project for a total of 20 hours for a semester. Uh, and over the course of the semester, that amortized over the weeks of that semester, it may not be that much time. Now, the risk is that you have to do the good quality work because this can blow back. If you volunteer and you treat it simply as a creden another credentialing experience and you don't deliver, then this is a very small town. This is a very small profession. Your reputation can take a hit. So you have to do it seriously, which is another way of saying don't be overly ambitious. But I, I, it is manageable. I think one of the things that students don't appreciate in law school is that there very quickly is a diminishing return on the amount of study you can do and expect then performance benefits. There are ways you can become very, very efficient and devote relatively little time. And there's ways you can be grossly inefficient and dedicate huge amounts of time and see no appreciable benefit. Uh, it is not about performance in law school in large measure is not about putting in the time. It's about becoming efficient in accumulating knowledge and skills and then applying those skills. So again, it comes back to developing systems early on. And one of the things I try to do in my teaching now is to encourage students to develop these systems and give them pointers on how to do that with mixed success. I mean, you talk to my students, some of them probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Others will say it's the best thing since sliced bread. Right, because now you're incorporating a flipped classroom, right, where most of the lectures and, and sort of the traditional teaching style is done outside of the classroom, whereas in class you have to actually participate actively and apply what you've learned rather than just sit there passively and just consume the information. And I wonder, having done that now, do you see a, a difference in results from your students? Like, Or do you even have students come to you and tell you, you know what, this is working a lot better for me from my other traditional classes that I'm taking? Uh, first of all, the stats. So these are, these are difficult things to measure because, of course, to be truly scientific, I'd have to teach exactly the same group of students exactly at the same time, give them exactly the same material except in two different, using two different methodologies, one flipped, one non-flipped. And that's impossible. It's not going to happen. And I'd have to avoid cross-contamination between the groups. I don't have a control group, in other words. What I do have is a control group over time. So I can look at how students performed in, in a classic context and the way I used to teach versus how they perform in a flipped classroom. And every single time I've done it, relative to past experience, there's been an appreciable difference. Mathematically, it works out the, the, the class average on, a, on essentially a, an identical exam in terms of methodology is about 5% higher. But what's more important to me is I don't have a long tail of underperforming students. So the students who are really, really struggling in the classic uh, lecture format class, uh, long tail of C's, D's, and F's, those students are doing better. I have a much more normal distribution of marks. Uh, and so the reason I think they're doing better is not so much that the in the flipped environment they can listen to the lecture over and over and over again because they can if they want to, but because what I do in the classroom is I get a lot more intelligence and I do a lot more diagnostic work as to where the students are because it's a much more iterative, interactive uh, format. And so I, I, I get an impression of where my students are. I know when I've lost them because I'm doing constant diagnostics. And that means I can circle back in a way that allows me to... Uh, compensate where I've obviously fallen off the rails and I haven't conveyed something adequately. I think that helps students. Now, you've asked, you know, do students come up to me and say this is terrific? Some people, some people say it's terrific. Some people hate it, right? And so to some extent, I rely on selection bias. And certainly in my upper year class, I give students uh, my shock and awe syllabus. I say, this is how we're going to do it. Students can select. They can vote with their feet. Mm -hmm. They don't want to do it. They don't have to. It's a little bit more difficult in a first-year class because there's less latitude for students to select. Okay. I'm still committed to the model. At the end of the day, 
I, I don't really have a sound a sense as to how much students like it. Um, I can tell students with some confidence that relative to their peers in my earlier classes, they perform better. And at the end of the day, that's what matters to me, not how popular it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually want to take you back to a point that we just discussed about um, creating more of a holistic sort of self of yourself, not just being focused on one thing, whether it's grades or whatnot, but also volunteering and things like that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how does one go about doing that? How do you approach various organizations? Do you cold call them? Um, there's one thing in law school where it's, it's either grades or it's just networking. And it, there's, it seems like we always struggle to find a balance between building relationships and still finding you know, our passion in life um, by volunteering or you know, taking on experiences to sort of discover what it is that we really want to do. So if we really drill down to the logistics of it, like, you know, what kind of advice do you have for students who um, really are just entering law school and are entirely overwhelmed? I'm sure your first year class is a very different dynamic than your third year upper year classes where people are a bit more seasoned. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, and uh, you know, with the first year class, they're learning how to juggle and ride the bike at the same time, right? right. And, and, and so um, my, my view is that for first year students, you may recall the orientation, right? All these opportunities are right. thrown at you. All these things you can do, and it's 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 overwhelming, and the your eyes are bigger than your appetite in some respect. And uh, there's going to be a settling in period for a lot of first year students, especially in the first semester. Uh, and there's you got to be, I think, uh, modest in what you can hope to accomplish. Thereafter, I think you can start investigating alternatives and different experiences and you asked how you do that logistically and, and that's a hard question to answer because it's where you have to be entrepreneurial uh, and to a certain extent we try to put students in the path of danger force them to be entrepreneurial at some level by offering the prospect of all sorts of internships here there and everywhere and uh, we have pro bono canada projects that are available and it's ready-made prefab almost for students to involve themselves in and for a lot of students that's that's the easiest way of going and just requires them to turn up and find something that interests them and go on from there for other students it means really cold calling it does mean cold calling it means going out and doing the networking networking maybe is a bit it has a negative connotation right. uh, in the sense that it sounds self-serving but it's not necessarily self-serving in the sense that you're 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 matching time talent an interest with an entity that has demand for that time, talent, and interest potentially, and so that may be networking in the truest sense of the word, but it's it's not predatory in any way. It's it's not self-serving, um, and so some of that is talk to your professors, say I have an interest in this area. Who should I call? And most of us have been around for a while, and we have some sense, and most of us are quite keen to help advance the careers of our students. And in other instances, it's simply going out into the into, on the internet. In fact, it's actually easier now than when I was a student because the internet exists. Mm -hmm. And finding out who's local, what they're doing, reaching out to them. Um, you have to be persistent, especially working with nonprofits. They're underfunded. They're understaffed. You have to be persistent politely. Uh, but often, I have to say, again, looking at the experiences of students, they have done some incredible things simply by cold calling. And they've got themselves in to a volunteer position and then someone went on parental leave and that turned into an articling job 
and the articling job turned into a permanent position, and no longer are they working as an articling student at Amnesty International Canada. They're off at the International Secretariat in London with a permanent job, and then they move from there to some UN post. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that happens not because you apply at the end of your law school with a ready-made transcript. It's something that happens because you develop relations in law school and you prove yourself indispensable to that organization. And when that parental leave comes up, you're the first person to think of to replace the person who's on leave. Right. And you mentioned building relations. And that's always, I think, the balance of networking does really have a negative connotation. And I remember having conversations in law school where Whenever networking came up, you know, it, there's always that kind of schmoozing element to it that we try to run away from. But if you look at it more as building relationships and adding value, it's a totally different conversation. And so I want to pick up on that and ask you um, mentorship. Do you do you practice mentorship and and how and if you have a mentor, you know, how does that mentee give something back so that they don't so that they don't feel that it's entirely self-serving that they actually are um, creating a relationship where it's a give and take versus just one way the mentor always assisting and the mentee just taking it in and going away yeah uh, I believe in mentoring I don't know that I'm very good at it I, I it's it's one of the areas where there isn't there isn't a prefab system every student's different their needs are different the amount of time that you have at any given moment when you first meet that student varies. It's very, very hard to have sort of a prefab, this is how I'm going to act as a mentor. I think it's very important, though. And with with mixed success, I do my best at it. I think it's my responsibility as a professor to do my best to advance the careers of my students. I don't, I don't tend to think that my role is to necessarily favor the careers of students who are doing really, really well in my class and they come to me with all A's. I mean, certainly I want to advance their careers, but I don't want to limit my mentorship to those individuals. In some respects, those are individuals who are least in need of mentoring from an academic perspective, certainly. Uh, And I also often see in students who aren't bringing that polished transcript to me, I see in students aptitudes and skills that I don't think the formal examinations and paper and assignment system in law school, I don't think that those skills are reflected in the transcript. And those are the students I really want to invest time in because I want to compensate for the fact that the system is imperfect and do my best to help them in developing their career and and, and developing those aptitudes and putting them to good use. The, the idea for me has always been one of paid forward. When I was a law student and thereafter, I wouldn't be where I am now, but for the fact that I had close relations with a handful of professors and the judge I clerk for and the reference letters that those individuals provided to me and the advice they provided to me and the open door policy they had for me really made all the difference in the world. So having benefited from such a system, it's only right in these circumstances that I do my best to honor that. And my hope obviously is with the students who, if I happen to have helped them over the course of their career, they will perform a similar function, perhaps in a very different way, but a similar function later on in their career. Uh, And you do see it, right? I mean, I've been around for a while now, and I see students who are more senior now, former students who are more senior now, Mm -hmm. government lawyers and and private practitioners and, and their colleagues, and those colleagues then are in a position to offer up advice and mentorship to the current crop of students. And so there is a chain. 
Well, exactly. And that's been my experience as well. And one thing that I've noticed is that sometimes the students in law school have a tendency to just completely overthink everything. So if you just say, well, if you have an interest in a particular area and that person works in that area, why don't you just give them a call? So it's just, it's a massive task that they see it. And well, what would I say? And how would I connect with them? And and it's just all the little details that bog them down, and then they end up not doing it, and then they potentially miss a really large opportunity. There's a lot of people who sit in their corner offices or in their cubicles doing really, really obscure things that no one seems to care about who would just die to get a call from a student who's interested in that really obscure thing. Yeah. That's the reality. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's validating, right? If, if there, there's an element of validation if someone's coming to you for advice. If someone's coming to you for advice, uh, someone's coming to you for assistance, there's an element of validating what it is that you do. And so the, the, the notion that they will be offended, if you do it, I mean, you could offend them if you do it in, a, in an inept manner, but right. the, 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 very, the thought that the very outreach will amount to something that's offensive, I think is an, an absolute and total myth. I understand that students are shy, and I understand that it's uh, an awfully tough thing to do, uh, but it's a worthwhile thing to do. And it's worth investing the time to think strategically, well, who is it that's doing this that I might reach out to? I get it all the time. I get missives from students at other universities all the time. This course isn't offered at my, my school. This is an area I'm interested in. Could you give me some pointers? And I'm very happy to do that because you know what? It's, it's flattering. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people, I think, would react in the same way. Now, the reality is people are busy. So how much time they can invest, it's going to vary. Uh, what practical assistance they can offer, it's going to vary. Mm-hmm. They're probably not going to respond as positively if it's, if it's entirely a pretextual approach. I'm not really interested in what you do. I just want you to get me a job. Right. So you have to be legitimate and genuine. But if you are prepared to be legitimate and genuine, then I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. Well, that's the other element, that there's this misconception of if you are trying to connect with somebody that you really you're just looking for a job versus maybe this person's journey will will actually give you some inspiration or give you an idea that you never thought of and actually open up some doors that you never thought would open up, but not immediately. It could be five years down the road. It could be 10 years down the road, but you never know what kind of lasting impact that relationship would have. Absolutely. And, and frankly, you know what? I expect people to get in touch with me who are interested in a job. People do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, people need jobs. And no one reasonable would be offended at the idea of, of a bright young person starting out on their career who's touching base with you and saying, I think I'm really interested in this. And by the way, I'll be graduating and I'll need a job. Mm-hmm. Now, the honest answer might be, well, I'm not in a position to offer you a job. I'm very happy, though, to have this relationship with you. And that's a good thing, not just in terms of you may learn something substantively from that relationship, but that person may be in a position to say, I can't offer you a job. But a couple of months down the road, they find out, that a colleague in some other department or in some other unit or in some other firm is looking for a a bright, talented uh, individual with an interest in this area, and who's the first person to spring to mind? The person with whom you've had contact. Mm -hmm. I have to say, in the law school even, there are stuff, there's stuff that comes across our desk all the time, opportunities all the time, even scholarships that are left on the table Mm -hmm. that students don't apply for. And we're we're left scratching our heads saying, well, how are we going to do outreach? I mean, what are we going to do to, right. to, to actually get convey this information to the most appropriate person? Advertisements only get you so far. Mm-hmm. Um, 
developing relationships and having some sense as to the capacity of individual students so that when something comes across your desk, you can say, ah, there's a good fit. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Mm-hmm. And that's true not just in the law school. That would be true for persons out in the profession as well. Right. And it really does go back to just being entrepreneurial and actually making your own path versus just following the herd and sort of the pre-made opportunities that are always up for grabs, but then everybody else goes for that. So you don't stand out. Yeah. So I just, just to wrap up almost this theme of, of, you know, going through law school and opportunities, I find through articling at one point, I had a bit of an existential crisis where I was like, Oh, what am I doing? What are my next steps? You know, I kept thinking about, you know, whether it, my work is average or if it's excellent. And then I kept thinking, what is excellence? You know, what is success? And I go back to what I know best, which is, do you do well in law school? What are your grades? Right. Right. Because there's always, it's like a fact. And then you use that as a reflector. So I wonder if you have some thoughts on that, you know, how do we measure excellence and success and what is average and what is not? And how do you, um, sort of, keep at it and get through these more challenging high pressure times and not have an existential crisis essentially Uh, again excellent questions and and very difficult ones because you're ultimately asking what's the meaning of life question and and i struggle with that uh certainly so what does it mean to scale the greasy pole and do i really want to scale the greasy pole and how do you measure the caliber of what i do is it the number of books i write uh, is it what the peer reviewer says? Mm-hmm. Is it the class evaluations that I get, which I care very deeply about? But at the end of the day, someone's always going to hate you. Usually it's the true. person I rate my professor, right? So <laughs> there, there's always going to be something that's going to drag you down. And to what extent is it going to be that going to be the defining aspect of your own perception of who you are and, and how you measure success? And at the end of the day, there's no clear empiric uh, as to your overall wonderfulness as a human being. And so for me, often it's about the process. Uh, I can't necessarily guarantee how people are going to react to my work product. But what I can control is the process I put in. Mm -hmm. So have I done my very best in the circumstances? And the circumstances could be quite variable. What I can do with 500 hours is going to be very different than what I can do with 50 hours. So in the circumstances, have I done the best I can? Have I performed to standards of professional competence that, that I think that I should manifest? Have I been pleasant in doing so? Have I been a good human being? Have I been honorable? Mm-hmm. In what I, have I been honest with myself? So a, a lot of these self-reflective considerations. Yeah, and maybe the person that I'm submitting this to absolutely hates it. I had a partner when I was in the law firm who was, you know, most associates didn't last more than a couple of months. Uh, wow. We ended up with a relationship. Uh, but I had to have a fairly strong internal compass or I risked being sort of quashed in that environment. So uh, having that internal compass is really important. And I think for me, it is about process. Have I done the best I could do in the circumstances? In the C-51 debate, mm-hmm. obviously highly politicized. For me, it was are not are they going to agree with me because they weren't going to agree with me. It was have I acted honorably? Have I avoided the low politics? Have I avoided the gutter? Have I avoided responding to the name-calling? Uh, have I comported myself to a standard of professionalism that I think is appropriate? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I would measure success. Not did C-51 get amended, because it didn't. Right. Is there a particular book that you would recommend that your students should read that is not particularly law-related? Sense of Style. Called A Sense of Style. Okay. 
by Steven Pinker. Okay. It is the modern guide to writing well. And okay. it's very entertaining. Okay. So none of those old stuffy grammar guides. Sense of Style by Steven Pinker. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to look uh, into so this. So that's the first thing. Because writing is the coin of the realm. And we, uh, I've been writing. I've, I have 14 books out that have my name on it, you know, including second editions. And I still struggle to perfect my writing. And I spent the summer listening to Steven Pinker's book on, it was an audio, ironically an audio version of a book on how to write. <laughs> um, but I actually got the hard copy thereafter as I was writing a book, as I was writing Full Security. And it was pretty stressful, right? Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden I was reflecting on how I was writing, which is a little bit like thinking about riding a bike as you're riding a bike. It's not a natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but absolutely Sense of Style by Steven Pinker. And the second book I'd ask you, I'd ask every student to read is something that you really want to read. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's going to vary from person to person. Reading nothing but law, uh, and you will be, uh, it, it will it will strip away your, whatever talent you have in writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so read something else that's good, okay. that's well written, and read a lot. Because we become better writers because we do two things. We read a lot and we write a lot. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity to read, you should always, you should always take advantage of that. Okay. And, and for me, it's not just reading actually anymore. I listen to a whole lot of books on audible.com. I can listen on the bus. I can look, listen while running. I can listen while swimming because I have different MP3 players that will do it for me. Um, <laughs> and I get through a lot, a lot of very interesting things okay. that otherwise I wouldn't have time for. And so I'm, I'm sort of force, force multiplying, multitasking. Excellent. I'm going to look into that. Um, Final question. What is the number one thing you wish your students started doing immediately after listening to this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's that's again, it's a hard question. I think in part because of where we are in the term, I would ask students to stop worrying about the credentialing process. It's not just about the branding. It's not just about the transcript. Mm -hmm. Embrace the opportunity to learn. Because at the end of the day, I think, honestly, if you embrace that, you will actually do better um, in terms of the actual credentialing process. Uh, but more than that, I think, the, as I've said at the outset, at the end of the day, three years is an awful long time for people to be caught in that dark cave of law school. If the only thing they're worried about is the marks they get at the end mm-hmm. of a course, and they don't actually embrace all the other opportunities that are available to them. Mm-hmm. So from my perspective as a, as a, a law professor, obviously that's what I would like students to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to be, I, I'm an educator. I'm not a, I'm not a credentialer. Mm-hmm. And I actually, the, the worst thing about this job is the grading. I hate it. I hate it both because it's, you know, obviously it's not a very pleasant experience mechanically, but I hate it because I just don't like ranking people. I don't like assessing a person. I don't like doing it knowing that they're going to take it personally. Mm-hmm. It's my job. I have to do it. Um, but it's the part that I dislike the most. And as I say, I like to find other aspects of a student's character and explore that and advance their career because of those other aspects, not just because of the transcript. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's an excellent point to wrap up our interview. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, no problem. hope it's helpful. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.